and plead for grace. We bow our knees in humbleness. We cry to God to heal our land. Forgive our sins and cleanse our Ensemble, we appreciate them when they sing for us. 
Well, Brother Jeffrey, you come ahead if you would. Again, we are delighted to have uh, Jeffrey Richter here, evangelist and, of course, Army veteran. He served in combat, 101st Airborne Division, and two tours in uh, Vietnam. He also was casualty assistance coordinator for funeral homes, for funeral honors, excuse me, for the United States Army and Army Reserve. That had to be a very difficult task, uh, but he did that throughout his career, and we're pleased to have him today with his dear wife. Um, and he, I think, is going to show a, a video and then start. Uh, but he has much to say to us today. He'll be with us again tonight at 6 o'clock. So if uh, visitors are here this morning, you care to come back, we'll welcome you, okay? But thank you for your service, sir, and thank you for preaching for us today. Thank you for allowing me to be here, Pastor. By the way, I do have a coin, and I just threw it down. So, oh. But in reverse, I will buy you dinner, okay? <laughs> I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. First things first, I have to have a drink of water because even though I've uh, been in front of hundreds of troops, it's nothing like being in the house of God, right? Let's give God the glory today. Pray, if you will, that he will hide me behind a cross and that all the glory and honor will be given to him, for he is worthy. First off, I'd just like to say thank you very much for allowing me this opportunity, my wife and I, to be here. Uh, being a Vietnam vet, you just, I don't know if I can express to you how much that means to me to be able to um, be here and talk about the things of God. In 1970, when I went to Vietnam, I wasn't a saved man. I wasn't saved till I was 30. And in the meantime, my wife, who I'd like to introduce to you right now, and if you'd please stand. My wife is a, a veteran of Vietnam for 21 years. She was born and raised there, 17 brothers and sisters. Thanks, babe. She went through a tremendous amount of difficulties, as you can only imagine, but met her shortly after I got there. And as I was traveling around the country, um, of course, we, we got together, got married, had to be remarried when we got back to the States because I wasn't married by a chaplain. It was a civil ceremony in Vietnam. We have three lovely kids. Uh, I call them kids. They're grown men and uh, one daughter, two boys, one daughter, and seven grandkids. I got, I got saved. I gave my life to Christ after somebody that I was working with in the shop um, presented the gospel to me. Greg Lane is his name. He's, he's with the Lord now. And I came home and I started reading the Bible to my wife and chasing her around the house trying to get her to understand what I had just learned. And about a month later, being the good Buddhist that she was, she decided to put Buddha not on the shelf but in the ground and gave her life to Jesus as well. So I praise the Lord for that every day. But Pastor Brown, Pastor Williams, thank you so much for your hospitality and you too, congregation. Appreciate that. This morning, first of all, I want to tell everybody here that God loves you. He loves you so much that you just, you just can't comprehend how much He loves you. 
How many veterans are here right now? Can I see your hands, please? I don't know if you're saved or not, but God wants you to know Him personally. He loves you so much that He gave His only begotten Son, John 3.16, that whosoever, that's you and me, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Gentlemen, if you're not saved, I would implore you today to give your life to Christ. It's been the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. My title today is Putting Christ First, Putting Jesus First. But it's a day of patriotism as well. So before I even get started giving you what I want to give you today that God's laid on my heart, I'd like to show you a, a video. It's called the United States Armed Forces. The United States of America is the most successful nation the world has ever known. I think that's largely because we're the freest nation. Humans cannot reach their potential, cannot realize their dreams unless they're free. If prosperity were easy, everybody around the world would be prosperous. If freedom were easy, everybody around the world would be free. If security were easy, everybody around the world would be secure. They are not. None of this is going to be easy. But this is the United States of America. It takes an extraordinary effort. It takes extraordinary commitment. It takes extraordinary strength. The Valley Forge wasn't easy. Going to the moon wasn't easy. Settling the West wasn't easy. We are the American people. We have seen difficulties before, and we always overcome them. This is about rolling up our sleeves. We might have some differences, but at Americans putting our head down and getting it done. That makes you feel proud, right? Yeah. Be careful of pride. You know, I'm proud to be wearing this uniform, and I wear it for this particular month, actually. The month of May is the hardest month of my life for some reason. I really have to be on my knees before God a lot, because in the month of May, we have several holidays. I don't know if you know this, but the month of May is known as Military Appreciation Month. First day of May, is known as Silver Star Service Banner Day, Loyalty Day. May 8th, anybody know what May 8th is? VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, World War II. May 11th, nobody knows this probably, Military Spouse Day, the day before Mother's Day. May 12th through the 18th is Armed Forces Week. That's what we're here for today. And yesterday was Armed Forces Day. And then of course, on May 27th this year, will be the celebration of Memorial Day. Ladies and gentlemen, Psalm, or I'm sorry, 1 Kings 8.60 says that all people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. My favorite verse, Psalm 33, especially in the day that we're living today, I would, I would ask that you would think about this. Psalm 33.12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord 
and the people whom he has chosen for his inheritance. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's where we need to be today. You know, I, I wear the uniform. I was in the United States Army. I'm retired. In my head, I'm still in the Army, but I'm in the Army of God first. I'm a soldier of the Lord first, and I would pray, my prayer for you is that you would, if you're not saved, that you would choose to be so today. But let's talk about patriotism a little bit, armed forces. I think for American Christians, there might be, might not be an issue more complicated or wrapped in history and politics than patriotism. Even saying the word patriotism is is like uh, gathering Christians is, is like raising as many responses as there is people. A love for our one's country is looked on with both reverence and in some cases revulsion by Christians. Now, I'm talking to Christians today, but this applies to all. And both sides seem to have good reasons to feel this way. I have three questions I, I hope that I can answer this morning. The first one is, how ought Christians to think about patriotism? Two, is there a Christian response to patriotism? And three, how can faithful Christians hold tightly their love for country and their primary, their number one love and commitment to the kingdom of God? First, I feel it's important to make a, a distinction between patriotism and nationalism. They're two different things. It's a distinction that's been blurred and blurred often, but it's a helpful one. Patriotism can only be defined simply as love of country. It's a love that seems to include much of the world's population. It's the kind of love that makes you thankful you're an American whenever you hear, God bless America. Or if you're a British subject, it might be God save the queen. Or it might be you're proud to be an American after watching this video we just watched. It's that feeling of unselfish gratitude for freedom, for democracy, or culture, or our Constitution, or any other values people around the world treasure in their country or in their nation. However, nationalism, on the other hand, takes the love of country, and this is important, folks, we need to understand this, takes the love of country and expands it to mean love of country at the expense of other, other, other nations. It's when someone believes they are better because they come from a particular place, or that someone is less valuable because of the country that issued their passport. In the United States, it's often given harmless sounding title like American exceptionalism, which in itself sounds pretty positive. But sometimes this term, and sometimes this term means good patriotism, but too often, and I personally feel this means treasuring American identity at the expense of others. It's saying, my country is better than yours, and you are less civilized, or you are less enlightened, or you're not as good as, a, as I am. National, nationalism never considers what one's nation could learn from others. Now, we're known as a nation of immigrants. So we've learned a lot from others, from immigrants, from other nations coming to our country. It's not just Americans who struggle with nationalism, of course, most nations do. 
All you got to do is watch the news and, and, and listen to the, the biased news. And it wasn't foreign, no pun intended. It wasn't a foreign problem in the New Testament church either. There's a reason Paul writes repeatedly about the need for the Jews to recognize full participation of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. The Jews' national religious identity made it difficult for them, though, to understand how a Greek or an Ethiopian or a slave from Asia Minor could be just as much a part of God's new work. But Paul's famous assertion that neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you all are in one Christ Jesus, is found in Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28 demonstrates that nationalism must never, must never be a part of the new kingdom of God. And I say what Paul said in Galatians again, it must demonstrate, Nationalism demonstrates, or nationalism must never be part of the new kingdom, of the kingdom of God. So the question is, is how, how should Christians distinguish themselves between patriotism and nationalism? Well, as in most things, it's best to know what Jesus did. If you turn to your Bibles with me in Luke chapter 19, we're going to look at verses 41 through 44. When you've all got there, if you'd just give me a hearty amen or a hua, I'd be happy. Okay. Back in my day, it was Roger that. Today, it's hua. So. Looking at uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 40, 41 and through 44, said, And when, when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in a, on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knowest not the time of thy vision. In those verses... It's a kind of a curious story because about Jesus, um, because in the midst of the pomp and, and the glory of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus begins to weep. He weeps because the city, and by extension all Israel, failed to recognize his lordship, and because he knew the impending destruction of Jerusalem. The scene is echoed again in a previous uh, verse in, in, in uh, Luke 13, 31, 35, where he grieves. He says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus, it seems, and we know this, loved his people. He loved his nation. He loved his city, so much so that he cried over it. And note that it wasn't just because one of Israel's swimmers won Olympic gold. He didn't despise his country or wish ill will upon it. Instead, he wanted nothing but the best for it. And it grieved him to see how his people had rejected his teachings. Jesus' example of patriotism perfected 
can provide a guidepost to Christians. We need to pay attention. It's an example that both pragmatic, romantic, shot through with justice, truth, and love. It's not a nationalistic patriotism. It's a love for the nation that doesn't pit it against other nations. Instead, it's a recognition of love followed by mournful recognition of shortcomings. That's important, folks. That's very important. We don't, we, we've seen to cast that aside today. If we apply Christ's words today, it might mean that we celebrate the times our nation does something great. The times it gives a voice to the voiceless. That's good patriotism. It doesn't mean we totally deny a love of, or appreciation of our country or throw up our arms or our hands feeling we can't make it any better because we can. Like it or not, we're part of whatever community into which we were born. Proper patriotism takes note of the inborn love many of us have along with a desire to make our home nations as good as they can be. Christ's words mean we embrace a healthy love for country and don't diminish the godly notion that it's okay to love the place from which you come. But Jesus' grieving also means we mourn the times when our nation does something wrong. Need to be honest with ourselves. It means tempering our love for country with the knowledge that there are times our countries will get it wrong. Because if you just look back under the pomp of most nations, there are some pretty ugly wounds. In other words, good patriotism lies in the ability to judge one's nations in its successes and its shortcomings. Perhaps the most, dis most important distinction to be made by Christians is that our first love has to be to the kingdom of God and to our Lord Jesus Christ. Over and above any love of country, no matter how, or, how, prue, or how, how true, how pure, how honorable that love might be. You know, it's easy, it's easy for Christians, it's easier for the world, but it's also easy for the Christians to begin to worship their country as an idol. I think we see that today sometimes. I mean, I've experienced it just in the different changes in the military. I've had, I put on seven different uniforms from 1970 to 2012. And, and the pride that we have in the military today can sometimes go over and above what's necessary. Now, I'm not taking anything away from our, our armed forces. We have good, good men and women there, but you know, you all need to pray for them. You need to pray for the salvation of many in our armed forces. At one point in time, when I was going through basic training, I was taught about the morality of war. You say, morality? War? The morality of war is knowing how to do the right thing in the worst of times. We need to pray for that today. It's not taught like it was back then. Anything goes, just like in our society. That's why you had the My Lai incident in Vietnam. That's why you had Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. We, we're, we're, we do everything ourselves. We, we, we set our own standard, not God's standard. Please pray for our armed forces, our men and women in our armed forces. 
Anyways, it's easy for Christians to begin, as I said before, to worship our country as an idol. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book called The Four Loves, and he puts the matter this way, and I quote him. He knows that the love of country becomes a demon when it becomes a god. Think about that. The love of country becomes a demon when it becomes a god. In short, we can too easily allow celebration of a nation to intertwine with and pervert our love of God. And in many cases, it usurps our love for God. We see how humanity has twisted almost every gift that God has given us. You know, please, as Pastor Dave Hansen would say, please excuse my vernacular. Ah, examples. Money. Sex. Work. Food. Drink. All of those can be perverted. They've been perverted. And there's many, many others that I just didn't feel like listing. And they've become damaging idols for far too many Christians, especially. They've sucked our society down the toilet. It wouldn't take long for us, for any of us, to think of examples when Christians have placed love of country above love of God and what disastrous consequences that, that has had. Therefore, Christians, your primary allegiance is to God. You better recognize that. You better teach your children that. You better teach your grandchildren that. And to his church. Which sometimes mean a Christian patriot must disagree with his or her country. That's hard to take. And do things which might be counterintuitive of civic duty. In fact, it might even be, we might even be called to engage in civil disobedience over issues like Abortion, the killing, the murdering of innocent babies, homosexuality, a perversion of what God calls good. Just to mention a couple. It might mean calling for the righting of past wrongs and upholding our religious freedom. You know, most of the time I just talk to, to Christians and churches. But we all, I need to, you need to, we don't need to be preaching all this to the choir. We need to be out there on the highways and the byways telling people this because there's people lost and dying and being uh, perverted in many ways. Don't get any amens to that, brothers and sisters, please. Christian responsibility always trumps, uh, no pun intended, patriotism, even when it seems uncomfortable. Jesus taught us that loving one's country is a godly thing. But Jesus also died for people of all nations, putting his own nation's interest below the needs of persons. To the people of Israel, this probably seemed kind of crazy at the time. It might have seemed that Jesus was betraying his own people by spreading the message to Gentiles. But the example stands tall to us. Or Jesus asked that we lay all of our loves, including our love of country, at his feet so that we may grant him the first fruits of our love. When Christians put love of country below 
below. God's here. Country's here. Whether you like it or not. And brothers and sisters in Christ are right there. As close to God as they can possibly be. When we do that, we see a glimpse of the future God has promised His church. John probably said it best in his vision in Revelation 7, uh, 9, verses 9 and 10. You can turn there if you'd like. After this I looked, John says, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Many, many people. From every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes. And they were holding palm branches in their hand. And they cried out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We should shout that every day. Every nation. Every tribe. Every people. Every language. It's an image of Christians crying their allegiance to God. To one to one another over and above any allegiance to country or anything else. It's a reminder that we can do the same even now. And let me say, I say again, it is a reminder that we can do the same even now. If you would please turn to me to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28. If we put God first, in everything that we do, he, give us, he gives us promises. And Moses is speaking to the Israelites about the promises of God in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let me know when you're there. With, say amen. I appreciate it. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God says, Moses says to the Israelites, and it shall come to pass... If thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. I'm going to read a few of these. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. In verse 6. In verse 7 it says, The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way, but they shall flee thee seven ways. That's if we're right with God. In verse 10 he says, And all people of the earth shall see that thou art called the name, called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. If you look over just a couple of pages, if we don't put God first in everything that we do, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, and brothers and sisters, I'm so humbled. Um, you know, when you, when you get to studying this, you find out, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really there either, you know. I need to get back to things. So, I might be pointing a finger at you today, but I've got... In this case, six point back at me. But let's look, what, let's look at what happens when we don't put the Lord first. Curses for disobeying God. In verse 20, 
He says, the Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, rebuke, and all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do and until, until thou be destroyed and until, thou, until thy, thou perish quickly. Verse 25, he says, the Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out, thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and shalt be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. Verse 28 says, The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. How many people do you know that are, have died of heart attacks just for no reason? Young people. In verse 33 says, The fruit of thy land and all thy labor shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up, and thou shalt be only oppressed and crushed always. Verse 47, because, the, because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart. Are we joyful and glad today? For all the abundance of all things, you'll be cursed. Therefore, in verse 48, shalt thou serve thine enemies which the, lamb shall, which the Lord shall send against thee in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee. Continuing on, the Lord shall bring a nation against thee from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as an eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not know, or not understand, a nation of fear countenance. Listen to this, folks. Which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young. They'll slaughter everybody. And then back up in 45, I like this verse as a conclusion. It says, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon thee and shall pursue thee, overtake thee, till thou be destroyed, because thou hearkenest not unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded thee. I don't know about you all, but I want the Lord first in my life. And the only way that, again, the only way we can have the Lord first in our life is if we know Jesus Christ is our Savior. If you're not saved, folks, I know in a crowd like this, even though it's morning service, I can't, I just know that there's somebody here that has not trusted the Lord as their Savior. I beg you, before it's too late, to do so. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, be thankful that we have a great God. A God that loves you above all your sin, about, above all your shortcomings. You can still come to the throne of grace. He loves you. Be thankful for our armed forces, for a great country. But try to understand it, if you can, as the pilgrims did when they first come to this country. Or as our forefathers did when they first established our great constitution. Be vigilant in the Word of God. Be steadfast in the Word of God. Most of all, put God first in your life. If we do, He promises to heal our land and protect us. I have one more video I'd like to show at this time. And then one other thing I'd like to pass on to you after this video. Pastor.
Now let's set the record straight. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war, but there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace, and you can have it in the next second. Surrender. Admittedly, there's a risk in any course we follow other than this, but every lesson of history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement. And this is the specter our well-meaning liberal friends refuse to face, that their policy of accommodation is appeasement. And it gives no choice between peace and war, only between fight or surrender. <coughs> if we continue to accommodate, continue to back and retreat, eventually we have to face the final demand, the ultimatum. And what then? When Nikita Khrushchev has told his people, he knows what our answer will be. He has told them that we're retreating under the pressure of the Cold War and someday when the time comes to deliver the final ultimatum, our surrender will be voluntary because by that time, we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. He believes this because from our side, he's heard voices pleading for peace at any price or better read than death. Or as one commentator put it, he'd rather live on his knees than die on his feet. And therein lies the road to war. Because those voices don't speak for the rest of us. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard around the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. Winston Churchill said the destiny of man is not measured by material computations. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn they're spirits, not animals. He said there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of men on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. You know, we hear this verse often. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, Lord help us, then will I hear from heaven, and forgive their sin, and will hear their land. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers, I love my country. I love wearing my uniform. I love my fellow veterans. But I love God a lot more. He's been so good to me, and my wife, my family. He's been so good to so many of us. 
Let's be thankful today. Let's put God first. Pastor? Let's stand for the Lord, please, for